You are listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. What's up, Sunday Schoolers? So good to see everybody. Uh, we're going to get started. I'm going to introduce Adam in just a second, who's going to be speaking. But before we get started, would you meet somebody you don't know? And there's lots of room up front, so move up front if you want. Meet someone you don't know. Pretty good set go. We are um, going to be talking about what well, we have been talking about since November, which is church history. We are on this long journey through church history, all the years of church history. So I'm going to introduce Adam, and then he's going to come and talk today. So everybody, shh, everybody calm down. Everybody's all hopped up on coffee and sugar. Um, so this is Adam. Come on up here. Adam has been working for the mill for years and years and years. Started off interning. Now he's here teaching and uh, has taken church history classes, has read the books, literally. And so it's an honor and a privilege to, to introduce Adam. Everybody, Adam Molesky. Good morning. All right. So if you guys were here last week, uh, Joe, Joe started the month of February by talking about the Middle Ages. And if you remember, the, the thing that Joe talked about was that the Middle Ages was like a thousand-year camping trip. Do you guys remember that analogy if you were here? So I figured that today I would keep with that trend and tell you guys a little camping story of my own. So a few years ago, I got a Facebook message from a friend, a good friend of mine, and he said, I think it would be really cool to get a bunch of people to go on this trip, this backpacking trip, this hiking trip. We'll find a really sweet spot to do it. So about, I think there were 16 or 17 of us who thought, who agreed and thought this would be a really fun time. So we put together this trip. It was a really, really great trip. Uh, this is a thousand-year camping trip thing that Joe showed you just as a reminder. But we, w- we went on this trip, and there we went to, right outside of Aspen is this place called Maroon Bells. And if you've been there, it's, they say it's one of the most fo- photographed places in the country. Like, it's beautiful. People go there. They take pictures. And if you go to the actual, the actual photograph spot and you take a right and just walk straight up the mountain, basically, there's this place called Buckskin Pass. So about 16 of us went. We went over Buckskin Pass to a little tiny lake that you can't get to by driving. You can't get to by car. It's called Crater Lake. So we walked through these hills. It's really hard to see. Unfortunately, we walked through forests and fields and meadows, and there's wildflowers everywhere. You can look at this picture. This is a picture that a few of us took. This was the on the way over the pass. This is the first group of people, the first five. We were like the fast hikers, and we took this picture. We're having a great time. We're all smiling. But about 10 to 15 minutes after we took this exact picture, this trip became the trip from Hawk. You know what I'm talking about. It was the worst. It was the most evil, most awful backpacking, hiking, camping trip I've ever taken in my life. And I'll explain why. So this was September of 2012. If you remember, in 2012, the Waldo Canyon fire was here. It, it burned the mountains over there. It kind of came over the ridge. So that whole month, or that whole year, we had the fire restrictions. So the whole state of Colorado, basically, you couldn't have a fire. How many of you know if you're going to go camping, one of the best things is having a fire? It's really like it makes the trip or it breaks the trip. Well, when you're backpacking and hiking, 
you can't just sit down and have a fire, but when it's cold and you set up camp, a fire is nice. But like I said, we this is at the very top of Buckskin Pass. We snapped this picture, started walking down the path towards Crater Lake, and it got frigid. You can't really tell in this picture, but a huge like cloud of fog came through. It started raining. We were all hiking. We had been we had just hiked, I think, seven or eight miles up Buckskin Pass. Now we're hiking down in the cold and in the rain. And at one point, we passed these guys who were kind of like, they were on their trip and they stopped to take a rest. And we talked with them for a little bit and we were saying, man, this is so miserable. We wish that when we got to camp, we could start a fire. And we joked with these guys about how there was a fire ban, but we kind of, there was just these two random guys in the woods and we were like, well, if you guys start a fire, we won't tell on you. And if we start a fire, don't tell on us. So, but the trick is that we didn't have phones, we didn't have reception, and there was a few little rumors, whether it's from our group or other people that we would walk past in the, the past. There were like these whispers, like, I heard that the fire ban actually got lifted just now, like earlier this morning. So there's temptations as we're walking in the cold. We're like, can we, should we start a fire, should we not? So at one point, because we're the first group in this hiking group, we're the first five, we were kind of going at a faster pace. We had to stop and like set up tarps. We didn't have tents with us. We set up tarps. We're trying to like stay warm. One person in our group even like curled up. I don't know if you can see it. Like curled up in like the roots of a tree and took a nap. I think he might have been crying, but I'm not sure. Um, you can see there's here's a little that's him wrapped up in a poncho, trying to fit into the tree roots, just crying and sleeping, and we were cold. And my wife and I got these, if you've heard of like the camping hammocks, we got these camping hammocks and they're really sweet. So we went on this backpacking trip thinking, let's just build, like use these hammocks and we won't need a tent, we'll just hook up the hammocks to trees. It's 2012, we had the Waldo Canyon fire, so it's clearly not going to rain, we don't need to worry about that. As you know, that was wrong. So her and I have our camping hammocks, it's cold, it's raining, we're setting up camp, so we're building a shelter out of tree branches and leaves and stuff to sleep in that night. So like I said, it was a pretty miserable trip. But the next day, we, we finished out the hike, we got to Crater Lake, and we saw it. this picture right here is really a picture of one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen in my life. Crater Lake, if you ever have, have the opportunity to go, you need to go. It was really gorgeous, and the sun came out that next day, and we had a great time, and all 16 of us, here's a picture of us all by Crater Lake, we had a really, really wonderful time there, even though the hike to the lake was one of the most miserable times in my life. So I wanted to start off with that story basically to tell you that sometimes getting to the most wonderful things or having the greatest results in life, you'll walk through some pretty miserable stuff. You'll walk through some things that are difficult. And it's, it's not necessarily always the case, but in a, in a good amount of times, you'll see hard times before you get to the wonderful times. So, I wanted to welcome you to Sunday School. If you haven't been to Sunday School before, and this is your first time here, uh, there, on your table there's a first-timer card, and if you wouldn't mind just filling that out, uh, bringing it to the table in the back right outside the doors, and they'll just welcome you, they'll give you a gift, thank you for coming. We're really excited that you're here. And like I said, if, if you haven't been here before, then you might not know that all this month of February, since November, like Joe mentioned, we've been talking about church history. And in February, we're talking about the Middle Ages. So it's this time after the fall of the Roman Empire. There's this huge stretch, like Joe said, it's like a thousand-year camping trip where it's just kind of a not-so-great time. And so I wanted to talk to you because when you think of the Middle Ages, you do think of 
society kind of falls apart in a sense. But there are some bright spots to the Middle Ages, and I wanted to start off today by talking about one of those. Pope Gregory the First. This guy is one of the popes in this stretch. But if you remember last week, Joe talked about how the papacy got started, how the pope is just the bishop of Rome who basically people looked up to and kind of made him the figurehead of the church, and it evolved into what it is today. So one of these popes along the way in, in the Middle Ages is Pope Gregory the First, and I think it's important for you guys to know who this is so that you know that I mean, like our current Pope, there are some Popes who are really awesome and do great things. Pope Gregory was the son of a Roman nobleman. He, he grew up in a pretty wealthy home. He, his dad was involved in politics, and so at some point in his life, he was also involved in politics. He was elected or basically given the position of the Prefect of Rome, which is, they say, it's the highest civil authority that you can have in Rome. He was in charge of all sorts of things. But he went a few years doing this and then just gave it up. He kind of resigned and went back to just being a monk, which, if you know, um, I mean, if you're living as Roman royalty or uh, nobility, you're, you're doing pretty good in life. You probably have what you need. You probably have enough money and possessions to get by. He gave it all up to be a monk, which means you go and you sit in the room and you pray and you work hard and all that. It's not the most glamorous life, necessarily. So that kind of shows you his heart. Now, in Rome, around his time, there was this, this plague that happened, and a bunch of people were dying. And they say that the Pope, at the time, he actually caught the plague and died. And so for six months, there wasn't, a, there wasn't a Pope at all. And nobody was really signing up for the job. Everyone was, I mean, when, in the time of plague, you're really more concerned about your own health, about surviving through the day. So Gregory wasn't really in line for the job. He didn't want it, necessarily. But he, he had been looked on highly as, as by the last pope, so he had some people who noticed him, and he had a, a good reputation. So basically, he got roped into being the pope. Uh, he didn't really want it. He he um, he kind of reluctantly took the position, if you will. But he really did some really awesome things. He he um, let's see. Sorry, I'm backwards here. He. He had it, so his dad, like I said, was Roman nobility, so he had money. And when his dad died, Pope Gregory took the money. This is a little bit before he was Pope. He took the money from his inheritance, and rather than helping to buy his own things or taking care of himself for his own life, he gave the money away, and he built seven monasteries. So, just think about this guy, Pope Gregory. He's a really great Pope. He, he really did some really wonderful things while he was Pope. People really looked up to him. And even to this day, like the church will call him Pope Gregory the Great, which if you know something about history, you'll hear about guys. We're going to talk about another, the Great, today. But it's not like I would walk around and tell people if I was a king, like, hey, I'm Adam the Great. But even these guys, like Pope Gregory didn't introduce himself as Pope Gregory the Great. It was a term that was added to his name later, basically to signify that he was a really great guy. So, I wanted to start off, too, by having a discussion. And I want you guys to think about this, this idea. I want you guys to think about the Middle Ages and think about the time that they were living in, the church, the setup of the church, the setup of government. And I want you to discuss with the people at your table, which is a great time to meet some people around you if you are sitting at a table by yourself, jump in with another table and discuss, meet the people there. But I want you to talk about this question. What was it like to be a Christian in the Middle Ages? What did Christian life look like? 
So go ahead and take a few minutes, and we'll uh, have a few people give some answers. Just talk about what was it like to actually live the life of a Christian in the Middle Ages. So hopefully you've had a few minutes to talk about this. And like I said, I'm going to come around. If your table has any really good guesses or good thoughts, go ahead and raise your hand, and I'll come around and get your answer. Go to Chris Russell. All right, Chris. Uh, we, um, through a lot of nonsense discussion, discovered that uh, Christians back then didn't necessarily have a access to the Bible. Yeah. So this table is kind of a table of theologians, and they didn't know. So that was interesting. All right. Yeah. So one thing is that Christians back then didn't have access to the Bible. Anyone else? Dan? Dan? <laughs> He introduced himself as Dan the Great. So. No, no, I didn't. Dr. Kirkmel did. Uh, we, our table here, uh, we said it, it was uh, awful and like dying. There was the, the, the survival factor. It's you know, you're living immediately in this day by day kind of thing. And then also there was a lot of heresy, as we as we can see that since there was you know less biblical literacy and not oftentimes people would say, well, God willed it, and therefore it's going to. So yeah. good. So. So you're kind of living in a survival mode. You're living day by day, trying to take care of the needs of your family. You don't really have a bunch of time to worry about theology. And, and going hand in hand with the access to scripture and literacy, you know, these, these people were by and large uneducated at all. The only thing you knew was what your father taught you, and um, even kings were illiterate. So they were solely dependent upon the church to tell them what. The scripture said so it's really uh, open to corruption and well let's see it says here in second hezekiah 519 that you should give 25 percent of your lands to the church and who are they to argue they can yeah. read it yeah good so you're you're reliant on the church good or bad to tell you what it is anyone else before keep going all right so so yeah so growing or living at the christian life in the middle ages was a little bit of a tricky thing Number one, you guys mentioned, like you mentioned, that there was no access to the Bible. So you wouldn't have a Bible probably in your town. If you were lucky enough to have a Bible in your town and you wanted to go read it, you couldn't. If you were allowed to go read it, you wouldn't be able to because it wasn't in your language. So, like you guys said, there was no access to the Scriptures. The second thing is, there was this tricky thing. At New Life, we would say we're non-denominational, we're evangelical, charismatic, whatever labels you might put on it. But in the Middle Ages, you were—you didn't really have options. You were Catholic, and you were part of this church. So there was probably one church in your your area. Um, like today, Aaron Higgins, who just you know gave some input on the question. If I decided today, like I don't really like Aaron Higgins, I'm going to go to Brady Boyd and tell Brady to kick Aaron Higgins out of our church. And if Brady walked through the door right now at 9:56 a.m. and told Aaron. Aaron, you need to leave and not come back to New Life. I would bet that within an hour and without a car, Aaron Higgins could be accepted, welcomed, given a gift, and meet the pastor at any of three other churches in this area. You know, if we could come out of New Life, he'd be like, oh, sweet, I'm going to another church. I'm going to walk down to uh, Briargate Church right here. And he would be accepted, he'd be welcomed. But in the Middle Ages, if you acted up, if you questioned anything in the the bishop or whoever didn't like it, they could get you excommunicated. And that was like dying. It was like, I can't go to another church. There's no other church. And if I went, found another church in a different town, they're also Catholic, and so I'm on the blacklist there too. 
So you kind of are like, in a little bit, you're kind of pressured into fitting the mold. Uh, and then the church services weren't in your language as well. So not only was the Bible and the scriptures not in your language, but the services weren't in your language. So it'd be like you coming into Sunday school and me speaking in a different language, and you didn't understand it, so you kind of, by the pictures and by my actions or whatever, my body language, you might be able to try to figure out what was being talked about, but you might not understand it. So it's kind of like watching a foreign film without subtitles. You're like, I think I know what's going on, but I don't really. So there are a few things, uh, like, like if you ever hear magicians say, hocus pocus, that, that came out of the church when they would break the communion. They would say this phrase that people thought sounded like hocus pocus. They would break the bread uh, and give people communion. And they would say, this is the body and the blood of Jesus. And they would say that when you said that phrase, it actually became the body and the blood. So people were like, oh, they're doing some sort of magic trick. When they say hocus pocus, and that's where that came from. That's not a joke. So, living life as a Christian in the Middle Ages was rough. Next, I want to talk about the Carolingian Empire. Carolingian, Carolingian Empire was this group, this family, basically four guys, uh, grandfather, a father, a son, and his sons, who had this period of kind of reuniting people after the fall of Rome. So, this is around the year 757-something, 700 A.D., uh, Pepin the Short is, he, if there's the, the grandfather who's Charles and then his son Pepin, the Pope at the time was having some issues. The, the Pope is getting attacked by the Lombards and he, he basically cries out and asks for protection from this guy Pepin. And when he does this, Pepin comes from kind of the area of France and he rides through to Italy, to Rome, and protects the Pope from the attack that the Pope is having. And when he does this, the Pope kind of rewards him by saying, you're the king of the Franks, which is a big moment in the Middle Ages and it's a big moment in church history because the Pope just, out of nowhere, decided that he can make someone king. And so, if you think about the, the implications of that, that's like, we'll use Brady Boyd as an example again. If Brady Boyd was the Bishop of Colorado Springs and he thought, you know, I think I'm going to pick a new mayor today and just found someone and said, you're the new mayor of Colorado Springs. It's kind of like, what? How can you do that? You're, just, you're in charge of a church. How can you be in charge of civil matters too? But that's what happened. He, he crowns Pepin, who was called Pepin the Short. He crowns him king of the Franks. So Pepin kind of goes through. He, he, he built, starts to build the empire. He starts to kind of take over these random little groups of people brings him into his empire, the Carolingian Empire, and he starts to rebuild and he reunify like the like kind of the old Roman Empire was. And then when he dies, his son Charles takes over. And Charles, uh, we now call him Charles the Great, so that kind of tells you that he's probably a pretty good guy, at least for the most part. Uh, you might know him as Charlemagne, if you've ever done a history class and heard the name Charlemagne. This is the same guy we're talking about. Um, and Charlemagne kind of in the same way, he, at one point in his, in his kinghood, he goes and protects the, the Pope as well. And this Pope, he, uh, let's see, this is Pope Leo, I believe. Pope Leo uh, crowns Charlemagne the Holy Roman Emperor. So, if you remember that the Roman Empire kind of fell about 300-ish A.D., 
and for this whole time, there isn't the Roman Empire. It's just, it's kind of fallen apart. There's a few empires, the Eastern Empire. There's like these random tribes who all have their own thing going on. And then the king of the Franks is crowned by the Pope who leads the church as the Holy Roman Emperor. And you think, that's kind of crazy. That's kind of a big deal. And so here's a map of the empire. They say that it was actually, I mean, it was actually a pretty significant amount of land that he had and that the people that he conquered and brought into his empire. But the empire wasn't holy. The empire wasn't Roman. It was kind of like in the French area. And the em- empire wasn't necessarily an empire because there was so many other people who weren't at a part. They weren't conquered. There was this whole group of people to the east and the people to the south and Africa and even Spain was taken over by Muslims. And so it's when you think about the fact that the Pope made this guy Holy Roman Emperor, it's kind of a pretty big deal, and it's kind of surprising and shocking to hear that that might be the case. But it all kind of came out of this thing, this thing called the Donation of Constantine. The Donation of Constantine, I want you to kind of think of it like this. The Donation of Constantine was this document that around this time, when people started maybe whispering about, how can the Pope make someone a king? Well, this document arose, and it basically said that Constantine gave the Pope the power. Back hundreds of years earlier, he gave the Pope the power to name kings. He gave the Pope the power to, to make these appointments. And so this was kind of like a trump card in the sense of saying, yes, the Pope does have this power, and you can't really argue about it. You can't take it away. We have this document from Constantine proving it. Well, this document was later proven to be fake. And I don't really know the details of when it was faked, if someone wrote it that day or they found a fake earlier and used it as a proof. But it's like if you were on a campsite, if you've ever been camping at like an established campground, you might show up and there aren't any uh, people working there, but there's site numbers. And you might have called earlier and tried to make a reservation. Or you just showed up and you took a campsite and someone came up with a piece of paper that looked official and they're like, hey, this is my campsite. I've got it written right here. You'd be like, well, I don't have a phone. My internet, like, I'm in the woods, so the internet isn't working. Yeah, I guess I can't really check. So, yeah, this is your campsite. I'll move. So that's kind of what this was. It was like the donation of Constantine in the Middle Ages, where people aren't really that educated. There isn't really a bunch of government centrality unity. This this document was kind of played as a trump card. It was kind of like a, an unfair way of winning the argument. And so you might say that, that this is kind of a bad thing, because... Charles, like we'll talk about in a second, did some really cool things for Christianity in a sense. He, he, a lot of people became Christians because of him, and I'll explain that a little bit later. But it all kind of stemmed from this, this lie, this deception that happened with the donation of Constantine. And so you might think, what, how does that fit in my head? Like, how does, how does that work in God's kingdom? Someone made up this huge lie. Someone gave Charles the authority but it wasn't really true authority. It was like made up and fake, and he kind of faked his way in. Or, I mean, he, he, it wasn't really even him. Like the Pope kind of faked his way in by giving him the, the control of the Holy Roman Empire. So that's the second discussion question of today is I want you guys to talk about on your tables, can any good come from evil? So if we call the donation of Constantine and this deception, this lie, if we would, were to label that as evil, can any good come from it? How does that how does that fit into what we believe about how God works through us and with us? And 
So, so again, take a few minutes with your table and talk about this question of can good come from an evil act like lying and deception or whatever it may be. So hopefully you've had enough time to talk about some ideas here. I want to take one or two responses, answers, if anyone has the will to share. Anyone? What did you guys talk about at your tables? Bueller. Bueller. We'll go to Aaron Higgins again, even though I kicked him out earlier. <laughs> Well, yes, of course. Uh, God's all about redemption. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like what the enemy plans for evil, God intends and turns into good. Um, so, I mean, lo- looking at the, the fourth document establishing the church as a political authority may have in and of itself been bad for me, but a lot of good came about. If we look at the Middle Ages, and um, we have the, the Black Death, the plague, and it just tore Europe apart. And Europe would have slipped further and further into despair. And we would probably still be coming out of there if it hadn't been for the church to be that, that concept. I, I compared the Catholic Church earlier in your discussions to the UN, the UN of its day, where it was cross borders. It, it didn't matter if you, know, you were French, if you were Spanish, if you were English, you were Catholic too. And the, and the church was there to help bring stability in a very unstable time. So even though the, the whole of it may have been for evil intent, lots of good came out of it. Yeah. That's good. Anyone else? I'll tell you that I talked about how when Jesus told Jesus, how like Satan kind of entered his heart, but then good came out of it because Jesus, by Jesus betraying them, he came and yeah, so even even Jesus' death and resurrection was kind of initiating the sense by Judas and his act of betrayal. So yeah, this is this is something that I want wanted you guys to think about because today, for the rest of today, and then for the rest of the month, we're gonna we're gonna talk about some hard times of Christianity. I think you know, like. If you've ever had a conversation with someone who's anti-Christian or anti-church or maybe a Muslim, they'll talk about what we're going to talk about, the, the basically the forceful advancement of Christianity through war and through crusades. Joe's going to talk about the crusades next time, but I'm going to talk about, like I said, Charlemagne, Charles the Great. So Charles the Great, like we just talked about, he becomes the Holy Roman Empire, kind of on the, the basis of this constant the donation of Constantine. And he, like I said, he does some kind of cool things in a sense. If you look at his life, there are some things where you might say he did a really awesome job at being the Holy Roman Emperor. He, in the Middle Ages, like we've talked about, there wasn't a whole lot of education. And Charles basically fixes that. He, he creates monasteries, and he, the monasteries that exist, he basically reforms them in a sense, and he, he makes them centers of learning. So people are going to school, they're learning languages, they're learning different things. And for, for the first time, maybe, they've had the opportunity to learn. And when the, the good thing that came from Charles is the unity that he brought. He, like I said, he conquered lands, he brought people into the empire. And if you're living in a, in a little tiny village or a little tiny town and you're constantly worried about 
whether you're going to eat or not, or whether you're going to get attacked or not that day, there's probably not a whole lot of emphasis on sitting down and reading a book or learning something other than a, a practical skill or learning how to plant food. So when Charles brings unity and brings peace to this, this part of the world in this time, there's finally like a little bit of breathing space to, to learn and to read and to study. So that's a great thing that he does. Uh, and then the other thing that he did was he really spread Christianity. And this is kind of like a two-sided coin because he, he spread Christianity so much so that you might even argue that with the way that the world was going with the fall of the Roman Empire, paganism, these pagan tribes were kind of running around, taking over people, attacking people. They were, they were spread out all through Europe. Christianity wasn't, it was definitely very prevalent, probably the biggest religion, but it was under attack. People were being attacked all the time. And Charles kind of puts his fist down and brings Christianity to people. And he did some things that brought people to Christianity, and I think in the end had a good result. But when he would conquer these tribes, especially the Saxons in the north, like the Scandinavian area in the world, he would forcibly baptize thousands of people. He created laws where if you, it said if you pretended to be baptized, which I don't really know if that means like you like fake actually going into the water, or if you cremated your loved ones, or things like that, you were put to death. It was like a death penalty. So in a sense, he's forcing people to be Christian. And they say that these Saxon tribes, the pagan tribes in the, in the Saxon area, believed that because they were pagan, they had these pagan gods. And if they were baptized, then they thought that they, because they were forsaking their gods, that in return their gods were forsaking them. And at that point, they had no hope other than to accept the god of Christianity. So they really did in the end, have this real faith in God. They really had a genuine conversion towards Christianity because they felt like they were trapped into it. So, like I said, it's a two-sided coin because I don't think the right way to go about telling people about Jesus in our world is to run around and force them to be baptized or kill them if they don't. But if there is a way that we can tell people about Christianity and they accept it and have a genuine conversion, some might argue, what, what's more important, the means or the ends? So, Charles the Great, remember this is a term given to him later by people who said that he was a great man, really spread Christianity, and he really did a great thing in the Middle Ages. There's kind of this bright spot of Christianity, a, a re-emphasis on learning and study. So, in the midst of this dark time where you're on a thousand-year camping trip, this is kind of like sitting down and reading a book. You're, you're trying to learn something. People are finally living in peace, they're finally advancing a little bit. But what happens is, I mean, like anyone, Charles dies, and his sons basically split up the empire. And whether for good or for worse, splitting up an empire between even family is going to cause problems. And it basically splits the empire, fragments it enough to where the empire falls apart pretty, pretty quickly. And then we go into this time where, if you've heard, if you've studied the Middle Ages before, even outside of church history, there's this system called feudalism. And feudalism kind of came about at the end of the Carolingian Empire. Basically what it was is that the empire had things, like one example is it, it's even money. So if you have like, I don't know what they were called, but Carolingian dollars, and the empire falls apart, it's just like having monopoly money. It's kind of like, well, it doesn't mean anything. So if, you have, if you're in the town and you have Carolingian dollars, let's call them that, and you walk over to someone who doesn't work with 
Carolingian currency and you want to buy something, they're going to say, yeah, that's, your money's no good. You can't, it's like coming in with monopoly money to a store and trying to buy groceries. They're going to laugh at you. So what happened is money lost the power of wealth. It lost the power of, of, of having anything. So a pretty quick shift happened and land became power. Land became the wealth of the time. So if you had land, that was really the important thing. So these, but if you know the feudal system, there's basically kings who have all the land, and then they, they give their land to other people, basically in exchange for service. So the knights, and then the serfs, so it's like knights would serve kings for a certain amount of land, and then the kings would have land, they'd give away to serfs who would do their farming, who would do their dirty work, basically, like all the, the stuff that you don't want to do. And they would provide them protection in exchange for farming. So feudalism is a system that is going to basically impact a lot of what happens in the next hundred years, few hundred years, and it's an important part. But I wanted to close uh, today by basically talking about this idea, like we talked about in our last discussion, of what, what good can come from evil. And you, I think a lot of us in the room might have this thing in our hearts where we, we look at our lives and we look at maybe some of the things that we've done or the things that have been done to us, and we kind of get discouraged and we say, like, I don't know that any good can come from me because of what I've done, what I've been through, what I've walked through. And I wanted you to, to take, a, take a step back and look. We're talking about church history from November to who knows when, whenever we finish. And I want you guys to make the connection that when we talk about church history, it's not disconnected from us. Yes, we're talking about people who lived 1,200 years ago. And yes, we're talking about people who lived in Europe and not in America. They lived totally different lives, but church history is our history. For those of you in the room today, it's, it's the story of you. It's, it's steps along a road that have brought us to where you are today. The fact that this building is here, the fact that this city is here, kind of, it all comes back to the history of the church, I think. The, the, the way that the church influences the world and the way that the world influences the church has a great effect on you today. So I don't want you to dis- disconnect like this discussion question that we talked about, can any good come from evil in the church with this donation of Constantine, applies to your life. It applies to, you might have the question of, can any good come from my life even though I've messed up? And it's something that was talked about, that is talked about in the church a lot today. And I think that sometimes we kind of take it for granted. We, we get to this point where we hear it so often that it doesn't mean anything to us. But I wanted you guys to really think today about how God is a God who's faithful to us. And he, like in the Bible, there's whole books of the Bible, like the book of Hosea is a story about a faithful God, the faithfulness of God to his people. He was so faithful to Israel, even though constantly it was like a cycle. They turned their back on him, they walked away, they would repent, and then they would just turn their back again and walk away. And I think our hearts do that so often. It's so hard to, to be faithful, it's so hard to be perfect. It's, just in our nature to fall and to, to fall short of what God has for us. But I really want you to be encouraged today, and I, I really want to drive from the point that God is a God who's faithful to his people, and he's about restoring and working even in the midst of our mess. So you might say, like, I've got so much going on in my life, I can't even get it together personally, how can I have an impact? But when you look at the story of Charlemagne, or Charles the Great, he also had a lot of things that he did wrong. He messed up quite a bit. Like we talked about, like forcing people to be baptized is probably not the best way to go about it. But God worked in the midst of that. He built his church in the midst of the, the shortcomings and the, mess, the mistakes, the messiness of mankind. 
And so as you go about life, and at the mill we're talking, we have this series, we're doing the divine chapters, talking about how the, these years, wherever you are in life, they're all formative years. They all matter. They all are bringing us to somewhere. And so, like we're talking about at the mill, like we're talking about here, this is a progression of our lives. It's a progression of us messing up. And throughout life, we're, we're always going to mess up. But I want you guys to just really take heart in the fact that however much you can mess up, God is more powerful than what you can do to mess up. And so that's kind of how I wanted to end, is just praying over all of you guys and praying over us as, as a church and as a family, even just the middle Sunday school, New Life Church as a whole. But then, I mean, the church on a worldwide basis and pray and thank God for his willingness to use us, his willingness to put us to work even though we do mess up, we do fall short, we, we, there's no way that we could do it perfectly on our own. So, if I can, I just want to pray over you guys, and I want to pray for us, like I said, as a church. Lord, we're so grateful for you. We're so grateful for your faithfulness to us. We're so grateful for your persistence in loving us, for your relentlessness, God, and the way that you pursue us, and the way that even though we we mess up and we turn our backs on you and we make silly errors and we make mistakes. God, you you see past all of it and you see the beauty of the church in us. And Lord, I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for your faithfulness to us and I want to thank you for the history that you've given us as a church. Lord, that this history that's filled with mess, that's filled with hard times and scandals and war and lies and deception, God, but you brought us to a place where you are bringing your kingdom into this world through us and in partnership with us, and we're humbled and we're honored and we're grateful, Lord. And we, I pray for everyone in this room, God, who, who might think that personally, that they have messed up too much or things have been done to them that they can't get away from, or whether it was abuse or um, even just the way that they were raised or the, the way that they grew up, they grew up not having what they needed. Lord, I just want to pray against any lies that might come into their hearts that say that they that no good can come of them or that no good can come out of their lives. And I want to speak life into them. Lord, would you remind them today of how you, you, you are a God who restores and who redeems. And Lord, would you remind people who are who are discouraged and depressed about, even if it's the next two years of school, or that, would you give them the strength to, to work through this discouragement? And would you give them the strength and the encouragement of knowing that you are a God who works, even though we messed up so much? Lord, as we go today, as we leave this place, would you, would you also remind us about how we are involved in this story? We're involved in this history that goes way beyond the last hundred years of the church or the last 300 years of American church or whatever it is, God, would you, would you remind us that we are a part of a bigger story, that the people that we're talking about in Sunday school are our brothers and sisters, they're our fathers and faith. And Lord, would you just, uh, would you tie us to this story so much so that we would look at the, the, the mistakes and we could learn from them, we would look at our lives and we could look at where we're headed, and we can remember that it's all part of what you are doing on the earth and bringing your kingdom to us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right. 
2012. Uh, like I said, Joe will continue the Middle Ages next week and the week after, and we'll talk about some of the craziness that happens in this thousand-year camping trip. But I just wanted to thank you guys for being here today. Uh, remember, if you're new and you wanted to fill out the first-timer card, there's a table right in the back. You can stop by there, and they'll greet you and welcome you. And then uh, main service starts at 11, and we'll all see you there. Thank you for listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. You can find more information at www.themillonline.org.